Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Tonight, breaking news as we come on the air. Defense Secretary James Mattis is out, sending his resignation to the president. It comes to... Now got a resignation letter here from General Mattis, the defense secretary. Defense Secretary James Mattis surprised President Trump when he handed him his resignation letter. This according to sources. A letter that has sent shockwaves across Washington and the world. This is Radio Atlantic. I'm Isaac Dover. Nine months ago, Secretary of Defense James Mattis resigned. It's easy to forget those big moments, given what politics is like these days. The news was quickly eclipsed by the government shutdown then, and there have been many, many big moments since. But it was, by any measure, one of the most significant events of the Trump presidency so far. His departure surprised the president and the nation, not to mention many concerned allies. Mattis was the last so-called adult in the room for Trump's White House. H.R. McMaster, John Kelly, Rex Tillerson, these were supposedly checks on the president, and they were gone. Mattis was the last to go. Well, now he's finally speaking up with a new book coming out next week. Our editor-in-chief, Jeff Goldberg, has known Mattis for a long time. He's been talking to him since his departure, and in the most recent issue of the magazine, he's written about those conversations. And today, he's here in studio to talk with me about them. Jeff, welcome back to Radio Atlantic. Thank you. You know, I used to be the host of this show. I know. So what does it feel like to be on the other side? Uh, uncomfortable <laughs> and sort of elegiac. Yeah. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll see if we can make it I think it I'm going to take over again. Well, Isaac. You are the boss. <laughs> out of here. Out of the seat. <clears throat> no, no. I think you're doing a fantastic job. I speak on behalf of all of our listeners when I say you're doing a fantastic That's, job. And, and, you know, you, you went from, from threatening to that, and I don't know if it's going to work for you. Yeah, it's bipolar, just like, a, just like the subject of our conversation. And I don't mean Jim Mattis. <laughs> Uh, well, so let's let's go back to what uh, that moment was when Mattis resigned. It was yeah. last December. Uh, it was right before the government shutdown happened, right before Christmas. And Mattis surprised everybody by saying, that's it. He put it, turned in a resignation letter. He had had this meeting with uh, Trump in the Oval Office. What, what has that meant? Why, why did that matter so much then, given what we've seen so far, do you think, uh, since then? Well, like you said, he was the grown-up in the room. He obviously has the most sensitive job in the government, uh, especially when you have an erratic president. I mean, because Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, is going to be the uh, the breaks or the, the switch uh, between a president and the nuclear arsenal that the president commands. So there was always in the backdrop, everybody was thinking, well, the president is erratic, but you got a grown-up like Jim Mattis um, who will literally tackle the president if you have to uh, in order to keep him from doing something dumb. Um, so his departure scared the hell out of a lot of people. I want to say this, though. It wasn't – for people who are watching, it wasn't that much of a surprise. Uh, if there's any surprise about Jim Mattis's second year in office was that he was lasting as long as he did. Uh, in his first year, he was esteemed and – uh, the president seemed to have respect for him. By the second year, you know, like, I don't know who made this expression up, but everyone has a half-life with Donald mm -hmm. Trump. 
And he reached his half-life, you know, somewhere about a year before he resigned. And then things started to deteriorate. Why do you think he reached the half-life? Because he was disagreeing with Trump? Because he wasn't doing Because he was slow-walking Trump. There was the Woodward book in which Mattis is purported to say that Trump is the... I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something about, like, talking to a sixth grader. There was, you know... A, what was coming through or was leaking, even though Mattis himself wasn't a leaker, what was coming through was that Jim Mattis, like almost every other serious person in the administration, thought of um, Donald Trump as immature and you know incurious and, and all the rest. Um, and I think in any case, as you well know, Trump just gets tired of people around mm-hmm. him and they all have half-lives. And once you hit your half-life, your, your, your disintegration uh, begins. The, the the thing that brought uh, Mattis closest to resigning before this was the decision by Trump to overrule Mattis on his choice for the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It's always the Secretary of Defense's prerogative to name a person. Presidents very rarely intervene in that. They usually just rubber stamp it. He wanted – Mattis wanted Goldfein, the, the head of the Air Force. Trump wanted Milley, the head of the Army. And, and that – upending of tradition, uh, from what I understand, really infuriated Mattis. But Mattis was sticking with it. There was a period right before the resignation in which, uh, if you recall, I mean, this was 97,000 controversies ago, but Trump deployed troops to the Mexican border, the U.S.-Mexico mm-hmm. border, to deal with the... The supposed caravan. The supposed emergency, you know, that required right. the United States military to intervene. And Mattis went along with it. And Mattis's view, as I understand it, was that... My job is not to agree with the president's policy prescriptions. If it's legal and if it is not immoral, then I will do it. And he could not find a reason that this was illegal or immoral. Of course, U.S. troops had been deployed in previous right. presidencies to the to the border. Um, and Mattis basically built a system where uh, the troops weren't going to be armed and there was going to be no possibility of confrontation with immigrants. Um, nevertheless, a lot of critics said, oh, Jim Mattis, what are you doing? You know, you're now abetting a racist and all yeah. and all the rest. But he stuck with it. But the Syria decision, um, Trump's impetuous announcement, which was, of course, later reversed, that right. he was going to pull all U.S. troops out of Syria and turn over the fight against ISIS to whoever. Um, that was too much. That was too much for Mattis why, to bear. Why is that the thing? Mattis had spent most of his career in the Middle East fighting extremists of one kind or another. And... This is not a quote I got from Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis, we'll talk about this in a minute, I assume, the fact that Jim Mattis is not telling us all that he thinks and feels mm-hmm. about Donald Trump. And that was part of the the tension, if you will, of my conversations with him where I was pushing him to say something in advance of the 2020 election. You know Donald Trump better than almost anyone. What do you think? Um, but um, – When he went into Donald Trump in the Oval Office, he asked for an hour with the president um, over the Syria issue. He spent a half hour arguing with the president, do not pull U.S. troops out of Syria. Uh, We have not beaten ISIS. We have to be on the ground, at least advising our allies. In any case, if we abandon our allies, what does that make us? Obviously, that's not an argument that usually appeals to Donald Trump. But put that aside, um, about a half hour in, he, he looked at the president and said... You know, the next secretary of defense is going to have to lose to ISIS. I'm not doing it. Uh, it was almost a point of pride. It was a uh, a point of experience. It was a bridge that he couldn't cross. He felt that the president was setting the United States up for failure in Syria, failure against ISIS, and he wasn't going to participate. He spent not just that meeting, but he spent obviously months, years fighting ISIS. And... Uh, 
he couldn't take it. He just couldn't do it. Do you think that there has been a clear effect of Jim Mattis not being there as it's been uh, playing out in what Trump has done, how the administration has been working? We've had uh, an acting defense secretary, and now that person did not become the defense secretary. Another defense secretary isn't. We haven't had the crisis yet that yeah. would that would that would truly illustrate the impact of his absence. Maybe when there was the, the in June, when there was going to be the bombing of Iran and it, uh, Trump apparently 10 minutes before the bombs were to drop. Yeah, I think Mattis, Mattis in the system at that moment would have made made Trump clear, uh, made the consequences of that decision clear to Trump. He might mm-hmm. have done it anyway. Look, the point is, is that Jim Mattis himself was feeling ineffectual. He was feeling that he had lost his ability to sway the president. Just like many, many people who have quit this administration. Um, so so the Jim Mattis of 2018 wasn't the Jim Mattis of 2017 in terms of his ability to influence mm-hmm. the president. Remember when he was first hired in the job, Trump was in awe of him. Yeah, I remember. I was at a rally. It was one of the post-election rallies that Trump was doing. Uh, that weird period during the transition where he would still go out on the road and we were in North Carolina. And that was the, it was the night that he had uh, nominated Mattis or announced Mattis. Uh, and he's, he brought him out onto stage and he said, this is Mad Dog Mattis. And, yeah. and Mattis was clearly uncomfortable. Well, it's being a nickname there. Right. that he hates. Nobody well, actually calls him Mad Dog. Right. And uh, also, he didn't want to be on stage at the political rally, God clearly. Forbid, why you would know? you? <laughs> Uh, and it was a, you know, a Trump rally in every way that it is, which is not yeah. Jim Mattis's natural environment. Yeah. No, Trump loved the image of Jim Mattis, but when Jim Mattis started saying to him, um, "Allies are important, uh, continuity is important, stability of decision making is important, uh, fighting, uh, not, not giving in to, uh, not believing, let's say, North Korean propaganda is right. important." When the when this president doesn't want to hear something, he doesn't want to hear something. And so what you do is in this administration, and this is not just Jim Mattis, Jim Mattis started with more capital in the bank, but what you do is you you spend down. You just spend down over time. And by 2018, mid-2018, he had spent down. So this goes back to your original question. Um, what is the consequence of not having Jim Mattis in the system? Day-to-day, not much. We have a secretary of defense now who is doesn't have the stature. We had an acting secretary of defense who didn't have the stature. We haven't had that, let's just say that nuclear moment. And I mean that literally. Mm-hmm. The, the moment when a secretary of defense has to go to the president and say, I know you want to do X or you don't want to do X, but here's here's the decision that you have to make and you must listen to me. When Jim Mattis does it, four-star general, former NATO Supreme Commander for Transformation, former CENTCOM commander, most revered living Marine, warfighter in Fallujah, everything. When he does that, for most audiences, most audiences internally go, oh, Jim Mattis believes we should do Mm -hmm. X. Maybe we should do it. Donald Trump was probably going to be impervious anyway, but we'll find out in the full. And we can't prove this. We can't prove what the absence of someone means in a a system that is built to uh, cater to the whims and... um, sometimes irrational decisions, impetuous decisions of the president. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, if the, if the question is, does it, does, should it make American citizens more nervous that Jim Mattis is not um, in the system? The answer is fairly obvious. I will say that I talked to William Perry, one of the defense secretaries for Bill Clinton, uh, a year and a half ago, and he one of the points that he makes is that uh, it's not true that a president 
can be stopped by the Secretary of Defense in ordering a nuclear strike. That that, that is yeah, not true. something that we have in our heads as something that's there. But the chain of command is, does not include the Secretary of Defense. No, the so. Secretary of Defense should be in the consultative phase. Right, but, but if the president says do it, then the Secretary of Defense cannot look, stop Look, people it. need to understand that this is the most important question that we, we've faced, even though we don't think about it very often, since the introduction of nuclear weapons into our arsenal. Um, the president is a democratically elected leader who is a nuclear monarch, an absolute right. monarch. Yep. The president can pick up the phone once he opens the, the football and, and, and proves that he is the president and calls Stratcom, says, bomb Russia, bomb right. China, bomb North Korea, do, do the following thing. Yeah, here, here's, the, here's the operational plan. Go forward. Um, you're supposed to have the defense secretary on the phone when that happens. Remember, you have very little time sometimes right. to, to make these decisions. But yeah, no, the defense secretary is not the person who can veto. Nobody can veto this. It's a president. The president is chosen by the people to make these life and death decisions. The president is commander in chief and he tells his commanders to go bomb something, they bomb something. So let's take a step back here. You thought it was important to chase down Jim Mattis to hear what he has to say about this. How do you... Well, chase down is a lot of it. I emailed him, but yes, I get your point. Yeah. Uh, well, how is it that, that he comes into your life? When do you get to know him? How does he come into my life? <laughs> You make this sound so romantic. <laughs> um, uh, Iraq, I, I think. I mean, I've known him for a really long time. Uh, when he was, uh, I think I first, if I remember correctly, I met him when he was a two-star in Iraq around the time of the Fallujah campaign or probably even before that. And he was well-known. I mean, he is unusually, this word is always used as a kind of insult for people, but I don't mean it at all. It's unusually articulate. He has a folksy very clear way of speaking. And so he had become known in journalism circles for, for that. For giving a he's a savvy quote. guy. Yeah. He's a great war fighter. And he's also known as one of the great scholars of, mm -hmm. of, of war fighting, of empire building. I mean, he has this huge library, as everybody knows, and he, he reads all the time. That's one of the reasons, by the way, when he was picked to be Secretary of Defense, I thought, whoa, this is not going to work because one of these guys reads and one of these guys don't, you know? Um, and, and I was right about that, by the way. I, I think that Jim Mattis has contempt for people who don't read history. And uh, one day when Jim Mattis is more forthcoming, I, I imagine that that's something he's going to say, that you really shouldn't vote for a president who doesn't read books. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Jeff Goldberg, editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. So, should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between, like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So, Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly. How much coffee have you had this morning? Oh, oh, oh. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. And we're back talking with Jeff Goldberg about Jim Mattis. So you decide that you want to get him to talk. You knew this book was coming out. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And you start emailing him. What – was he reluctant at first to talk or, or – No, or? I mean he wants to sell the book obviously. He has a book that's coming out. It's a very interesting book actually. It's a management book, mainly a leadership book. It's a little – it's quasi-autobiographical so those parts are very interesting. There's a lot about – 
the Battle of Fallujah, for instance, is a lot about um, his earlier career. Uh, so obviously he's he's he he, and you'll see in the story that he's trying to walk a line that's not really walkable. He's written this leadership book and this manual for managers and and executives, and it's all very interesting. But the country wants Jim Mattis to talk about his experience, and I want him to talk about what happened in the Trump administration. So he, for reasons that are 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 understandable and legitimate, especially for a former general officer, um, he believes that he should keep his mouth shut for a while so that the people who are left behind inside the administration can do their jobs without without him making it more difficult. But, you know, he we, we spoke because he wants to talk about his book. Uh, and I spent a lot of time with him in Stanford, out where he lives in, in Washington State, long walks, you know, basically making yeah, want- the argument <laughs> like, you know, what? I, I want to I go through what one of those moments looks like. This is from the piece. You're walking along the Columbia River, and he says, my model, one of my models, is George Washington. Washington's idea of leadership was that first you listen, then you learn, then you help, and only then do you lead. It is a somewhat boring progression, but it's useful. What you try to do in that learning phase is find common ground. And so, Jeff, you say, so on one end of the spectrum is George Washington, and at the other end is Donald Trump? And then you're right. Mattis smiled. It's a beautiful river, isn't it? I used to swim it all the time when I was a kid. Strong current. Yeah. <laughs> That's mean, what this is like. Yeah. I mean, it was very passive aggressive or it's very oblique. And, and he's trying to adhere to a – like I said, I think he's trying to adhere to a self-imposed rule that's very hard to carry through. I said to him when he goes on his book tour and people line up to ask him questions, they're going to ask about Donald Trump. But why does that question matter? Who, why, what do you think that we're going to get if Jim Mattis said suddenly, okay – I'm going to let you go. Here it is. I think as a voter, as a citizen, I want to know if the Secretary of Defense for the first two years of the Trump administration believes that Donald Trump is unfit to command. I think it's a very important question. I think think if if you're somebody high, high, high up in the national security apparatus and you doubt the president's ability to lead us in wartime or, or, or be in charge of our military and be in charge more to the point of our nuclear arsenal, then you are duty bound to tell your fellow citizens and voters, if this person is standing for election again, what you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, it seems, I mean, it seems, it seems awfully obvious to me that that is a basic obligation that, that surmounts the obligation to keep quiet. If he thinks that the president is a threat. If you have firsthand understanding of the president's decision-making and beliefs, and if you have reached the conclusion in your own mind that this man is not fit emotionally, mentally, cognitively, morally, whatever, whatever framework you want to use, if he is not fit to be in charge of our national defense, then for God's sakes, tell us. But don't we know the answer because he won't answer you? If he, right, we, if, we, we, we can sit around and guess all day right. long. I mean, you know, it's, it's. But if he wanted to say to you, Jeff, he's fine. He's the president. Then he would have said that, right? He knows what you're trying to say. He's a smart man. <laughs> you're asking, a, a, you know, a reporter is asking a reporter why you're trying to get a d- direct answer from a source. I, I mean, mean <laughs> you know, I want, I, I want a direct answer. You know. just, 
it it is a question to me of at this point. And by the way, I recognize that he you know he wants to talk about the book and he wants to right. talk about leadership. So what I wrote in the in the piece, which you can find at theatlantic.com. and you should, and you should. Uh, what I wrote in the piece is that at some point before November third, twenty twenty, just let us know. Right. Let us know who you're voting for. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be useful. Um, and I, you know, and maybe but it's a naive it... hope that people who are on the fence about Donald Trump would say, oh. Jim Mattis thinks that you can't trust Donald Trump with nuclear weapons. I'm going to take that on board. Well, it seems like when Colin Powell endorsed Barack Obama over John McCain, John McCain was running as the war hero on his judgment. And Powell was saying as a military leader, as a secretary of state, I I think Obama actually could do it as better than McCain. It it seems like this would be much more powerful if it were Mm -hmm. against You're talking about – I mean you're talking about – John McCain and Barack Obama, the, right. the, the, the gap that separates them is not the gap that separates Donald Trump from other politicians. Put it that way. <laughs> I, I do wonder, though, I mean, he, he it seems like he can't maybe avoid the question, but he also doesn't want to avoid getting asked the question. Yeah, right. there's a, <laughs> I'm glad you noticed that, uh, because if somebody truly didn't want to be asked, they wouldn't put themselves in the position to be asked. Uh, my, I assume that when you pitched him on doing this, you told him you wanted to talk about Trump, right? Yes. Right. I mean, I'm, I love talking about Marcus Aurelius, too. <laughs> and I love talking about um, command and feedback loops. I think this stuff is very interesting. As a manager, I think it's very interesting. <laughs> but um, uh, look, he, he was the most important member and most... Um, honored member of this cabinet, he quit in protest. I mean, going back to your point, there's some stuff here that's subtext and there's some stuff that's pretty text. Yeah. I mean, you read his resignation letter. This is not a guy happy with Donald Trump. It's written in a very polite tone, but you know what he thinks of Donald Trump. Yeah. And the Wall Street Journal ran this week a an excerpt from the book. That's the uh, prologue right, from the book. It's the prologue. It has a line, a polemicist role is not sufficient for a leader. He knows what he's doing. He's subtweeting yeah. and he's trolling a little bit. Although you had to introduce him to what the concept of subtweeting was. Look, not everybody knows what subtweeting <laughs> is. Um, but uh, does he want it both ways? That's the negative way of, of framing it. Yeah, maybe. Um, is he straining against his self imposed rule not to criticize a sitting president because he thinks that it's important that people understand Donald Trump's? Downsides? Yes. It's not. I mean, I, I have a lot of sympathy in one sense for Jim Mattis's dilemma. He's old fashioned. He doesn't want to criticize a sitting president. And you'll notice that he criticized Barack Obama in the book fairly free, freely, not in a personal tone, but just decisions. Um, so he doesn't have a problem criticizing presidents. He just thinks that he uh, and he said this rather directly to me that that undermining a sitting president right. is not in the best interest of the country. On the other hand, that conflicts with his, what I'm going to assume, and again, this is an assumption, assume is his desire to see Donald Trump not be returned to office because he believes, and his his own resignation in protest makes it clear, he believes that Donald Trump is not a great president. And he's, of course, not the only person who's holding to this kind of duty-bound silence. Barack Obama himself is mostly been quiet on Trump. Barack for, Obama has been even quieter, except yeah. for like, a couple of moments right in the midterms, I guess. And there was a statement maybe two weeks ago that was pretty clearly critical of Trump. By the way, interesting point, Barack Obama 
has been getting a lot of criticism from people on his own team mm-hmm. saying, like, when has it become truly a crisis? When are you going to actually right. say anything? I think Barack Obama also knows, and Jim Mattis might know this as well, that but the people who were supporting Donald Trump are not going to right. wake up one morning and say, well, if Barack Obama doesn't right. want if, me to support Donald Trump, then I'm not going to do it. If you are a committed Trump voter, I don't think Obama will be the no, thing no, no, to no, no. That might, and, and Obama's, uh, you know, Obama's smart about it, too. He's, he's thinking, my piling on is, is only going to firm up the base. Right. Maybe he's being political and calculating in that. I, I do feel like, though, we talked about how we haven't had the moment yet but uh, where this might matter. But... You know, there was a point in the administration early out where uh, Rex Tillerson, who was then Secretary of State, and Mattis and John Kelly, uh, Homeland Security, and then Chief of Staff, had made this sort of pact that one of them would always be in D.C. at all times, so that they would always mind Trump. They're all gone. And it is not clear that there has been an effect of that. I think Trump and a lot of Trump supporters would look at that and say, well, maybe this was all kind of noise that was being made. And you didn't need these adults in the room. And the, uh, yeah, but I think, the, I think the question is not whether you want adults in the room. I think the answer to that is yes. The question is how effective are any adults in right. the room? Maybe that's what it is. And I think that we've been, as a country, we've been lucky for the past three years in one sense, which is that we have had crises, but most of them have been manufactured by the president mm-hmm. himself. We... Uh, are not looking at the Russian invasion of the Baltics. We're not looking at a hot war between mainland China and Taiwan. We, we haven't seen a full-blown Israel-Hezbollah mm-hmm. or Israel-Iran war. Um, we haven't seen very aggressive deployment or testing of North Korean long-range missiles. All the sorts of things that could trigger an actual crisis. So... I think we're we've been lucky and and we don't know what will happen inside a White House when he's faced with a really crushing and fast moving international crisis. Yeah, I mean I just feel like sometimes we can get caught up in like well what could happen with the Trump presidency? We've been in that since he was running and so far I mean you're right that none of those outside crises have come you never know when they're going to hit but Maybe, uh, maybe, Trump, he, maybe, maybe he's, Trump would maybe argue, he's lucky and we're lucky. Or Trump might argue that he's actually kept the crises from coming. You know? Well, he's made more crises than well. he stopped. Um, and one could argue that his handling of North Korea is creating mm-hmm. a longer-term crisis. Right. But um, one that might be certainly, there after look, he's By the done. way, he, his, his, his unilateral decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal, as flawed as that might have been— um, created unnecessary tension in the Middle East, and we still haven't seen the full consequences of that tension. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think we're, I mean, I just, this is my old subject, foreign affairs and national (laughs) security. I just think we're skating on thin ice. I think we're skating along, and it's a nice lake, and it's a nice day, and uh, the ice is much thinner than we think. And so what you want to know is when the the ice cracks, can the president swim? Uh, And... uh, you know, it would be nice to have people around him with vast knowledge and vast experience. It, it does go to this central point, which is in a crisis, does it matter if it's H.R. McMaster or John Bolton as national security advisor right. or Esper or Jim Mattis? Because Donald Trump seems to just make de- decisions on his own intuitively 
without briefings, right. without knowledge, without intelligence. I mean, certainly he's antagonized the intelligence community, so he certainly is not a person who is taking on board mm-hmm. uh, the careful analysis of the intelligence community. Like I said, I think we're, you know, I think we're dancing right at the, dancing on the, on, on the thinnest of ice. Your central question on Mattis is that he, you feel like he should speak before the election, whether Trump should be I just, I mean, again, let me be careful. Just, just as I, I, when I was with him, I was thinking, what do I want as a voter? I, mm-hmm. I, I, I think, I understand the national security flaws of this administration, but I think it would be incumbent upon someone who, who has worked inside, who knows the flaws. I think it's incumbent upon them to share that information, not even the classified information, just the just the analysis, with the with his fellow citizens. That doesn't question, seem to be so crazy. What do you think a second term president, a reelected Donald Trump, would be in a way that would be different from what we've seen over the last three years? Probably not as much as some people seem to think, because it's already so erratic and it's already so odd and unprecedented in so many ways. I, I, I don't know the answer to you that You feel like question. he'd be empowered? There's, you know, like Joe Biden says, we're going to pull out of NATO if uh, if Donald Trump is reelected. Is is that Biden being uh, hyperbolic? I'm not going to be in the, I'm not going to make predictions on that. I think, yes, obviously Donald Trump wants to pull out of NATO. Right. Um, maybe he would feel free to pull out of NATO. Uh, but that's also possible. It's also possible that he's going to pull out of NATO next Wednesday mm-hmm. because why not? But I, I don't. I don't. I don't know if that break point uh, of the election um, is is decisive. I think we live every day not knowing what his policy inclinations are going to be. The story ends with a quote from Jim Mattis. I'm going to read it. There is a period in which I owe my silence. It's not eternal. It's not going to be forever. Is it before November 2020? What do you think? I asked that question. I did not get the answer, obviously. (laughs) Um, My guess is yes, but it's just a guess. Depends on conditions, which is to say, if he makes a move to pull out a NATO. Remember, Jim Mattis, more than anything else, stands for alliances. Mm Mm-hmm stands for strong alliances with Arab states, with Europe, with our friends in Mm -hmm. South Korea and Japan. If these alliances are in danger of being permanently ruptured, I can't imagine him not saying something. But again, Trump has done so much damage to these relationships already, and Jim Mattis hasn't said anything publicly, so I don't know. Here's another way of thinking about this. I think that a person like Jim Mattis, I'm not just talking about Jim Mattis here, but there are people like Jim Mattis, they don't want to end up as panel filler on MSNBC at three mm-hmm. in the afternoon. They don't want to be just one of these, you know, ex-officials who is uh, every, every, every half hour yelling, the president is crazy, the president is this. You know, you actually lose your currency you, 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 when everything is dialed up to 11. He's never going to be that. I can imagine him at some point in the next year, saying, for the following reasons, I think that the Trump foreign policy and national security policy are uh, endangering the United States. Um, Therefore, I cannot support this person, and I do not think he is fit to lead the United States. And just leave it at that. Um, Does that move voters who are pro-Trump? I don't know. Maybe it galvanizes more people on the other side. I I don't know. 
I actually think, again, now we're going like going two turns more than than I should in, in one sense is that I, I don't it's know. It's the beauty of a podcast. Right? I know, I know. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, a, it's, he might also think, what's the difference? I mean, going to the, going to the point we were talking about, he might say to himself, I'm not going to move hardcore. I mean, he's from rural Washington State, eastern Washington. He's, he knows Trump voters. Maybe he's thinking, I'm not going to move them anyway. So what do I have to go and become a Twitter target of Donald Trump? I have a nice life. I write books about leadership. I go fishing on the Columbia River. I, I go to the Hoover Institution at Stanford and I teach classes. This is great. I sit on corporate boards. I'm going to go hiking in the summer. Do I need to be John Brennan, mm-hmm. you know, the former CIA director, and be constantly targeted by Donald Trump and getting into flame wars with this guy all the time? Maybe, and if for to what end? Right. You know, maybe that's a maybe that's a thought as as well. I don't know. I mean, he's um, I know Jim Mattis well, but there are fairly well, but I, I don't know those secret parts. Well, I guess we have uh, a year and two months to find out. Yeah, and I might, and and we might pass November third, twenty twenty, and Jim Mattis hasn't said uh, hasn't said a word. I think one of the things that he'll do is he'll continue subtweeting, let's say, mm-hmm. in more and more obvious ways. Look, the entire book is a subtweet. The entire book is about effective leadership. Right. Everything he holds dear in terms of leadership, the George Washington quote that right. you talked about before. All you have to do is study Donald Trump's leadership style to know that that this book is a repudiation. Of right. His Nobody was crying out for a Jim Mattis book on leadership, but he decided. Well, I don't know. I, I think, you know, you, you mock, you Eastern <laughs> elite, you. But um, there are plenty of people who uh, look at Jim Mattis and say, there's an effective leader. Maybe sure. I can learn some tips from him. You know, I mean, have you been to an airport bookstore? Uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of crappy books. Bookstores. There's been a, a lot of crappy <laughs> management books in those in those bookstores. This is a good one, so why not? You know, but but again, I mean, if there's right now, I don't think the country is necessarily saying what we need more than anything is Jim Mattis leadership tips. What we right. need right now is Jim Mattis moral leadership. Yeah, uh, and maybe he would argue that it's the same thing. Jeff Goldberg, whose article, The Man Who Couldn't Take It Anymore, is up on the Atlantic's website and in the next issue of the magazine. Thanks for being with us here on Radio Atlantic. Thank you. That'll do it for this week of Radio Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode, and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is The Battle Hymn of the Republic, as interpreted by John Baptiste. You can find show notes and past episodes at theatlantic.com slash radio. If you like the show, rate and review us in Apple Podcasts and subscribe in your preferred podcast app. Thanks for listening. Catch you next week.